Hello everyone, it's January 23rd, 2024. Well, maybe Peregrine didn't make it to the moon, but Slim did. It landed on its head, apparently, but it seems to be okay for the moment. So in the meantime, we're going to take a closer look at what may have happened and guess as to what its near-term future might be. So let's do it and lift off. And we've put the title. Welcome to episode 443 of the What Up Next podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So uh, we talked about Peregrine last week, and uh, I guess we have a, like a little bit of an update. It's since uh, re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. So that's it. So I had, you know, about 10 days, and uh, mm. then that was it. But what's interesting is that, and I guess maybe I hadn't been paying attention to, you know, like exactly what decisions they were considering, but they actually were considering attempting a lunar impact despite the fact that they had this leak. And that just seems kind of incredible considering the state that the spacecraft is in. But they actually decided against that because of problems with orbital debris. Because if something went wrong again, then that could be a problem. They would pretty much just be leaving more garbage in space. So I think that they probably did the right thing and just re-entered it. But, um, I mean, that's pretty crazy, huh? Yep. Yeah. Go to the moon with a leaky oxidizer tank. But yeah, so the next big one for Astrobotic is actually the Griffin Lander, and that's coming up in November. And uh, so far, that's on schedule. But if they find anything with the Peregrine investigation that might affect Griffin, uh, then, you know, there might be some delays. But so far, you know, it's all set to go. But yeah, I mean, it seems to be just a faulty valve. And uh, yeah, we really do need to get a, some kind of a valve expert on you know, the show <laughs> to talk about this. Yeah. Because it would be good to know. Because I mean, that seems to be like we were discussing last week. Valves are at fault. I don't know what, like 50% of the time, would you say? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the actual numbers would be, but 50 sounds high to me. Oh, well, I'm going to start keeping track because I swear. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to be about that high. But yeah, I guess we can talk about some more successful, uh, qualified successful moon landings, right? Yeah. Yeah, qualified is a good way to put that. Slim landing attempt. Uh, was that a pun, first of all? No, I wrote that, but no, it's not a pun. Well, there was the opportunity for a pun there, but all right. So Yeah, like slim <laughs> slim chances. Yeah, slim chances or slim success. I don't know. Whatever. But uh, uh, the Japanese lunar lander did successfully qualified uh, land on the lunar surface. This was a vehicle that was launched, what, back in, was it September, I think? Yep. And it was taking a very leisurely trip. Uh, and that was in order to conserve uh, fuel for the landing. Yeah, so uh, SLIM stands for Smart Lander for Investigating Moon. And yeah, like you said, it launched last September with CRISM. Um, and it took uh, from, I think, the middle of December up to Christmas Day for it to enter the moon's orbit. And uh, leisurely is definitely one way to describe uh, this like keyhole three body problem kind of uh, maneuver that they're doing. What what's the actual word for that? It's a BLT, right? Ballistic lunar trajectory. Or I don't know if that's a specific type, but it's it's similar. If, if I yeah, like a like a ballistics or a ballistic trajectory. Yeah, it's one of the maybe the general term is the weak boundary. Yeah, weak boundary capture. is also a good word. Yeah. I feel like there are like four or five different terms that get applied, uh, and they mean mm. the same thing basically. So basically, it um, boosted itself up to lunar uh, encounter, and then uh, encountered the moon and used it as a gravity slingshot to sling itself way out into orbit, like like high Earth orbit. It was like two or three times the altitude of the moon. Um, and then it kind of slowly brings itself back around, then re-encounters the moon. And so it seems kind of silly because like, well, you got to the moon already, but getting up to 
the orbital altitude of the moon is only half the battle, right? Then you have to actually capture around the moon. And so this lets them uh, have the moon uh, basically do a second encounter where it's where it's easy to uh, capture and circularize. Uh, Mike in the chat says weak stability boundary. Yep, that's also another good one. I, I don't know if there's a, an actual difference between all these terms. I, I think they are. I mean, obviously they're referencing the same orbital dynamic type of pro, uh, of solution, but I don't think that too many people would say that they actually mean different things. I don't know. Exterior ballistic capture transfer is like totally. Uh, specific to <laughs> this trajectory, right? Yeah. So that, that one feels like it's more specific, but some of the other ones, I don't know. So, uh, Christmas Day, they, uh, captured into orbit around the moon and they went for their landing attempt, uh, this last Friday. So that's the 19th of January. And let's talk about their successes first. Before landing, they actually popped out two, uh, lunar excursion vehicles. These are like palm sized secondary vehicles. Uh, the first one is LEV-1. It's a hopper. It's the bigger of the two. Um, it's got some wide-angle cameras that capture uh, the visible spectrum. It's got a radiometer. Uh, it's got its own Earth comms. Uh, and I think the hardware for that was originally built for uh, the Minerva and uh, Omotenashi missions. Uh, but LEV-1 is, is really cool. It's like mostly a foot. Um, and it shoves off of the surface really hard and, and goes flinging off uh, into whatever direction. The other one is LEV-2, and it looks like nothing so much as a thermal detonator from Star Wars. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's a two-wheeled spherical rover, and it's uh, ejected as a sphere. And then once it's ready to deploy, the two sides slide apart, and a little... Uh, camera mast pops up. I mean, it's, it's really short, but there's a camera on either side. So it can look in both directions and the two hemispheres can rotate. And what's really cool is like, if you just have those two wheels, you really have to rotate a mass. Um, but to really get moving, what they do is those two wheels actually slide apart. So they, they've already popped open along, let's say the uh, plane of the equator. And then they slide sideways along that plane so that now you've got two offset hemispheres. They're still pointing their, their like pole axes are still aligned, but now they're offset. And so then when it, it moves with that offset configuration, it can kind of dig into the regolith a little more. Uh, it's a, it's a pretty cool little, um, little rover. Um, simplicity is, you know, sometimes the, the best solution. Um, we have photos of both of these guys on the lunar surface. Um, and they look quite happy. Oh, and, and they, they've also both called home. So, uh, so yeah, they're, they are fully operational as far as I know. Um, Slim itself did indeed, uh, have a soft touchdown and it was able to call home and talk to Earth. Uh, the only problem is that it's not generating power, which suggests uh, it has fixed solar panels, so the fact that it's not generating power suggests that it's not sitting upright in the intended position. So why is that? Well, we, d we don't know for sure, but we can sure as heck speculate. Uh, Slim has been nicknamed the Moon Sniper because it has a 100-meter landing ellipse. 
this is a super high accuracy lander and they built it with high accuracy in mind because slim actually doesn't want to land on flat ground. It wants to land on a slope. And in this case, um, they picked a, a location near the 300 meter wide Shioli crater. And there is a 15 degree slope. That's 27% for anybody who thinks about the slope of the ground in percentage like me. <laughs> they found a, a 15 degree slope uh, sort of on the outside of this crater. And unfortunately, it looks like they actually landed inside a crater. I don't think it's Shioli. I think it's smaller. And so I think they landed right in the middle and they're kind of on not only flat ground, but, you know, a, a dip, like a concavity. And I'm I'm not exactly sure if that's actually the case or if it's just uh, low precision location information being circulated around the, the new circuit. So the reason they want to land on the side of a slope is because the lander is is kind of a weird thing. It, it feels very Kerbal. So let's let's think about the lander coming in for a landing with the engines pointing down. Well, in that configuration, you basically have the solar panels on the left side and the landing legs on the right side. Um, the landing legs are not situated around the engines. So this thing does sort of a belly flop onto the ground. So the way this works is as the vehicle's coming in for landing, it takes a couple of different pauses where it actually, I believe, hovers above the surface um, and it uses uh, its optical cameras and I believe radar to scan the surface of the moon and to do pattern matching and, and figure out where it is. And then it can actually perform lateral moves before resuming its descent sequence. This is how we get to the moon sniper nickname, right? Like this thing is not doing an Apollo where you don't have any fuel to spare. Um, this thing is quite happy to pause and uh, look for the right place to land. So the the last pause that they do, uh, they scan and they decide what their final uh, lateral move is going to be. But they also rotate the spacecraft so that its solar panels are no longer pointing towards the sun, which in this phase of the moon is east. Um, and they turn the spacecraft so that its solar panels are now pointing downslope of their uh, of their landing location, which would be south in this case, um, so that when they resume the descent, they can come way down close to the surface and then shut down the main engines and use the RCS thrusters to get a little bit of a pitch down to bring the landing legs towards the ground. And the timing is intended to be such that the main gear that closest to the engine touches the ground at uh, about a 45 degree pitch and then it rocks forward and the nose gear hits the ground and you're inevitably going to have uh, some extra bounces here but the whole bottom of the spacecraft is basically flat with a couple of like hemispherical like knobby uh, landing feet more than landing legs um, and so you know in theory you just hit the ground and then flop over and you, you know, maybe bounce a little bit, but then you settle down and you're good to go. Judging by the data on the live stream, however, it looks like the vehicle hit the ground and tumbled and maybe even wound up facing nose down into the dirt. Scott mainly points out that it, to him, it, it looks like the final pitch maneuver wasn't started 
before the vehicle hit the ground or, you know, they, it wasn't far enough through that pitch maneuver uh, when it hit the ground. And I believe the intention here is that the RCS thrusters fire to begin that pitch maneuver and then the the thrusters are all passivated and we're just going to let gravity do its thing. And from the live stream, it certainly looks like the vehicle was firing its RCS thrusters after it had hit the ground. Now, of course, there's, you know, a bit of a, a lag in the telemetry as the vehicle starts pitching over or hits the ground. You know, all of that is going to uh, interrupt your nice, clean uh, comm. So there's some pretty good lag or, or uh, like hesitations on the live stream where it just stops. Data stops being updated on the screen. So we don't know if they're going to be able to take the raw signal and clean it up and get better data. We don't know if the, if the live stream had filters applied to it to make it look good for the stream. Like we don't know exactly what the actual situation is, but looking at the, at the live stream, it, it really does look like the thing probably wound up facing head down, like totally upside down or nose down. Not totally upside down, which would be the solar panels in the dirt. And, you know, if that's the case, that's actually really good um, because eventually those solar panels are going to be illuminated uh, as the sun moves overhead, assuming that they're just pointed away from the sun. I mean, e even if they're not, even if they're pointed north or south, you're going to get a little bit of light on them uh, at some point. Now, if it's at the bottom of a crater, that may not be quite the case. Um, and so far, the team hasn't said for sure whether they're confident that they're going to get those panels illuminated. But what they're doing right now is they're managing the spacecraft's power and trying to keep it alive until they are able to get some light. Uh, Colin in the chat says, I wonder if it could ride itself by pulsing its RCS, uh, assuming they haven't actually passivated the system. I mean, totally could happen, right? And you'd think that if they're going to do that, they're going to want to be really sure of the thing's orientation and... Uh, on and on. So hopefully that'll be the case. We'll, we'll have to see. D does anybody know how they got the images of the landers, uh, on the moon? Was that taken before landing? Cause I feel like if it was taken after landing, if they've got a photo, they've got a really, really good, uh, lock on the orientation, even if they don't know exactly what the landing sequence was. I think that's just an artist depiction. Yeah. Oh, I really? I, any images. I saw yeah. a couple that looked really good, but I, I guess, you know, we're in the land of, of, uh, AI assisted. <laughs> so like it was probably not too hard to, to use Photoshop uh, and produce some really good renders. Okay. That's a bummer. But, but maybe they, you know, they've got cameras, so maybe they'll be able to take pictures of. Well, yeah, that's what I was hoping to reverse out the, um, yeah, the orientation that way. I have to say, I find it pretty amazing that it landed, you know, like upside down or as you say, like nose, nose down, down because yeah, it would be pretty that crazy. seems like rather unstable that like you you would think it'd tip over in one direction because that's the long way right that's like it's more or less along its longer axis that's, that's the monolith orientation right <laughs> if you were trying to land it like that you probably couldn't do it but somehow it managed to land like that when you know you didn't want to do so i think that's kind of funny oh sorry just to ben you and i are both half right i guess um it, it wasn't an artist depiction but colin in the chat is Pointing out that those were probably from the lab during testing. And so they're real photographs. Right. There, there are lab photos, but there are photos that really look like lunar regolith and not simulant, but who, who knows without like actual, uh, captioning, I guess. So do you think that the landing on the side of a crater, that that informed how this would land or was it the other way around when they had this very unique way of 
getting this thing onto the surface. And they thought, well, it would be slightly easier if it were on a slope because that's kind of, I mean, that's just something that I thought of because I don't know if there's been any other lunar landers that have put themselves down on a slope, right? I mean, not not intentionally, I, I don't think. It, so, so this was a uh, like a response to a request for proposals. They, you know, JAXA said, hey, we've got, uh, you know, this budget for uh, this class of mission what are your ideas? And they, you know, they got academics writing in with, um, with lander ideas. So it, it, I suspect that it's likely their landing spot came first. They said, Hey, we would like to be able to land in this part of the moon and it's very sloped. So let's pick uh, a slope that works for us and then design a lander around it. But, but I'm not sure. Maybe I can find the proposal. And I'm just wondering because like, because if it had to land on say flat ground, how much more difficult would that be? Because then you have to pitch over completely. Uh, an extra 15 degrees. Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, it's not, yeah, which isn't like a big deal, but maybe, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the 15 degrees gives you more clearance for the engines when the main gear is touching down. So that that may be an issue, but I'm I'm not sure. I can see at least from the Google search, the designers of Slim thus decided to tilt the spacecraft to one side just before landing. I don't, I'm not sure if this is the case, but maybe maybe it has to do with the fact that they wanted to pick uneven ground just scientifically or like from an engineering perspective. If you've got your little rovers bouncing around, why not bounce them around on a, yeah. on a slope or something like that? It says the surface there is angled about 50 degrees, 15 degrees, which pose difficulties for landing without tipping over. Thus, they decided to tip the spacecraft. Right. That's, yeah. And so I'm thinking, well, why, why aim for a surface that's 15 degrees? <laughs> and I think maybe that they, they targeted that purposefully. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think mm-hmm. I think yeah. they have to, and then and then they had to change the engineering and came up with this solution of flopping over afterwards. I mean, thinking about other ways to do it, I guess wouldn't be too hard, really. Like if it was, but the problem is, it would be a more vertically, you know, like you said, it would be more like a monolith, and having to land something like that would be much trickier because you can't really. I guess maybe you can. I don't. Know, I'm trying to think like what kind of like lunar landers. Yeah, no, I suppose you could. That it could be more squat and you could put it along an incline like that without fear of it tipping over with the engines on the bottom. Yeah, playing Kerbal, the solution is always like if the engines are at the bottom, it's going to be a fairly tall vehicle generally. But like you can mm-hmm. put the engines kind of on the side like a crab kind of and have them raised a little bit. That's one kind of way to cheat your way around that, mm-hmm. at least in video games. But <laughs> But yeah, it does seem hard to me to design a wide spacecraft with the engines at the bottom has anyone ever like tried like building landers with like recessed engine nozzles yeah ish because like a recessed nozzle is really just your your spacecraft bulging out around yeah Um, it's just extending the body (laughs) so i mean depending on how strictly we want to interpret that like uh alpaca had recessed landing nozzles right (laughs) or engine nozzles that's what i was thinking of yeah but it's really structural mass that you have to extend around a very long structure that you don't want to touch that wants to be able to gimbal sometimes. And it just, yeah, Colin says the, the lemma scent stage had a recessed nozzle, but it didn't have to land anywhere. Um, and, you know, I was kind of thinking like the lem descent engine, you know, was, was kind of recessed, right? Like it had stuff around the engine. They should make a lander look like a, uh, a frigate upper stage. Because I, I feel like it's just like a ring of tanks around an engine. Yeah. I'll apply for an SBIR somewhere. 
All right, so let's do two short and sweets this week. Dennis, what's the first? EUS heads to qualification. The next big SLS component, the Exploration Upper Stage, has yet to enter full-blown manufacturing, but we're getting close. Unlike the Core Stage, EUS is mostly made of aluminum lithium 2050, so new fabrication equipment has to be built and tested. Mashud and Marshall are beginning to qualify their many friction stir welding setups. This involves producing test welds, then cutting them to pieces and performing several months of testing to confirm the welds are high quality. Mashud's first order of business is to produce the Structural Test Article, or STA, which will be used in a green run test campaign. The STA should be ready next year and will be identical to a flight EUS minus engines and avionics. Next, Ingenuity contact lost during Flight 72, then regained. Flight 71 was a planned 125-second, 258-meter westward repositioning that ended sooner than expected. Flight 72 was a short pop-up vertical flight to either confirm that the helicopter is ready for another repositioning mission or to gather more data on a potential malfunction. However, just before touchdown on Flight 72, communication with Perseverance was lost. After some long-duration listening sessions by the rover the next day, contact was re-established and the missing flight data recovered. The Ingenuity team is now processing the data that they have and are working on a diagnostic for the extraterrestrial helicopter. All right. Moving along then to this week in space flight history, we have three winners. They all get the bonus points. We have Cy Kyle, Leon Running Man, and Uncle Willie. The clue was cheaper by the almost dozen. So, Dennis, what was this clue in reference to? Well, it was referencing the event on the 24th of January, 1986, and that was Voyager 2's closest approach to Uranus. Yeah, good planetary one. There's not too many uh, spaceflight events really in the 80s, I feel like, you can pick. <laughs> you know, there's a, it's a pretty rough uh, decade for, for space. Anyways, yeah, so this, uh, you know, was Voyager 2, classic. Uh, interplanetary probe voyager one uh you know it's uh twin also launched which i always love the little bit of trivia with uh, voyager one that uh it only went to uh jupiter and saturn because they wanted to check out titan and so that resulted in a change trajectory that then kind of shot it out of the plane of the solar system by like 30 some degrees and if they didn't go and divert towards Titan, or to make Titan more, you know, visible. It could have gone and flown by Pluto, I think, in the 90s. So we could have had, like, Voyager 1 oh, wow. fly by Pluto, which, talk about a weird alternate history. But in any event, yeah. it, it worked out well. <laughs> so uh, Voyager 2, which actually launched first, was launched in uh, August of 1977. So quite a bit of time between takeoff and uh, actually uh, passing by Uranus. You know, it visited all four of the uh, giant planets, and in particular, this was four and a half years after uh, its encounter with Saturn. There's actually a lot of interesting stuff that they had to do after they launched the spacecraft, because, you know, you've got almost a decade, <laughs> um, you know, and over a decade until it flew by Neptune. And so all the people on the ground were, like, trying to come up with ways that they could improve things, whether it was with the software, like, things that you could improve remotely, whether it was the software um, making adjustments uh, to what kind of dead bands you'd use for attitude control, uh, things like that. And in particular, after Saturn, there were two issues that they ran into. Uh, there were two kind of failures uh, uh, on the 
uh, spacecraft. And one of them involved an antenna. I'm not really going to say much more about that. But the second one I thought was pretty interesting since it was something that they needed to fix before uh, they could fly by Uranus. And also because of the kind of what they did here talks a little bit about the uh, hardware. And so it doesn't just make this a purely astronomy twist. <laughs> and so the way Voyager looks, right? You've got the bus with this giant high gain antenna sitting on top. And then off to the one side, you got the RTG and a magnetometer sticking out. And then on the other side, you've got a long arm. And at the end of the arm is the uh, scan platform that can slew both, you know, an azimuth and an altitude, like a kind of regular old telescope, an all-as telescope. And on there is where you had all the different uh, instruments, including imagers, uh, uh, in particular what's called the uh, the Imaging Science Subsystem, or ISS, uh, which was literally a pair of Vidicon cameras. And so this this was old school. This was pre-CCD, charged couple devices. And so these were like the same ones that were kind of used in Mariner missions. Um, they had a wide angle and a narrow angle uh, camera. And that was what the pair was. These cameras take all the images and uh, they, they needed to be able to kind of slew to follow the spacecraft. Because, you know, during these flybys, you got the motion of the spacecraft that otherwise would blur out the images during the exposure. And so you kind of want to compensate for that as much as possible. And the fact that as you go further and further out in the solar system, you are looking, you know, you're further from the sun where the light drops off is the distance squared. And so you're going to need, you know, longer exposures because of the lower light levels that you're dealing with. And so that's, that's another fun kind of thing I always like to hear about is that the, um, asteroids, those pictures of asteroids you see when you just Google asteroids, those are typically very highly exposed, like long exposure images of them. Um, they're otherwise pretty dark looking. And if you just like look at what their albedos are, it'll be like, you know, 0.2 or 0.3 or something. It's like, yeah, that's pretty, that's a lot darker than just, you know, this white, this bright gray object kind of shining, you know, in the image. And so in any event, that just made, you know, uh, the second of those two uh, uh, faults that Voyager 2 ran into post-Saturn, a uh, bigger issue. Because it was a uh, that scan platform, the azimuth actuator basically uh, it broke essentially. It, it or rather became unreliable. Um, it started to uh, drift relative to where it was supposed to be. So in other words, it wasn't the gears had stopped rotating at some point when they you know were still trying to actually slew along the azimuth, and so that would have been a very significant issue if they just didn't try to fix it. And Voyager 1 had a similar issue back in, uh, you know, shortly after launch. Uh, and they found that in Voyager 1's case, there was some contaminant caught in the gears. And so the fix was really just to keep slewing one way and then slewing back the other way and then slewing the other way and then slewing back the other way, like just kind of going back and forth until they dislodged whatever was in there. And then Voyager 1's you know, scan platform worked fine ever since, or at least that I'm aware of, that directly fixed that contaminant issue. But this one was different because it was kind of inconsistent. Sometimes it would work, and sometimes it would get stuck, and sometimes it'd be somewhere in between. And so the good news was they had four and a half years between Saturn and Uranus to figure out what they, you know, how to fix this uh, from the ground remotely. And so they had uh, uh, ground articles that they, you know, a test article that they, you know, worked with to try to figure out what was going on. And it seems like it was actually a design error where the uh, the, the lubrication in the, in the gearing uh, basically was kind of, I guess, not being spread out where it needed to be and was kind of like coagulating in like one part and then thus leaving uh, other parts of the gearing non-lubricated. 
Um, that's kind of how I interpreted it. And so they, yeah, they, they were like, okay, so this is not something where we can just kind of swivel it back and forth to try to, you know, make things work, uh, uh, you know, to free up something. The way that they solved this is kind of anticlimactic. Basically, it turned out that if you slew at a very low rate, like less than one twelfth of a degree per second, because there, there were there were different modes for slewing uh, that they had uh, that you could slew quickly uh, at a degree per second. I guess they call that the high rate. There was a medium rate that was about a third of a degree per second, and then there was the low rate that was one twelfth of a degree per second, and then technically there's also a very low rate that was like one one hundred ninety second of a degree per second, at which point you might as well start talking in terms of arc minutes. But in any event, the uh, solution was to just really stick to the low rates if you were going to do some some slewing. And uh, But that might not be enough. You know, what if while you're approaching Uranus uh, and you're trying to take your data, you find that it gets stuck again? And so the cool thing is, if you know, again, if you just kind of picture how the spacecraft is, the scan platform is on this, you know, arm that's sticking out you know, radially from the main body of the spacecraft. So it's in the same plane uh, within seven degrees of the roll plane. So or I should talk in terms of axes. And so the roll axis is only seven degrees offset from the scan platform's azimuth axis. To You know, you could just spin the whole spacecraft, essentially. You'd have to burn some extra propellant, you know, and to be a little less precise. But you could just do that to get you the type of change in azimuth that you wanted to get from the scan platform so you could basically reduce the uh, the smudging from your images as much as possible. And so I thought that's a pretty creative kind of way to, uh, to to try to solve this because the the uh, the altitude or uh, um, uh, gears were working fine. So that gets you the kind of up down <laughs> uh, just fine. And so, uh, yeah, so basically they, they just did that during this flyby and it worked out great. They got great images, great data. Um, I don't think they had to actually do this uh, – rolling the entire spacecraft. They just basically stuck to small amounts of slewing. And so uh, to kind of give you an idea, when Voyager 2 flew by Saturn, there was a total of 102 revolutions in the scan platform, that much worth of slewing around. It wasn't just spinning, you know, nonstop like that. That included uh, 24 and a half revolutions at that high slew rate of one degree per second. Uh, by contrast, when it flew by Uranus, it did not do the high rate at all. And the medium rate, it didn't even do a full revolution in that. Um, and instead only kind of did a mere 20 revolutions worth of slewing, but at that low one twelfth of a degree rate. And so that was kind of, you know, a, a much less, you know, kind of pointing here, there and everywhere. But like, it was good because they were able to keep, you know, everything working fine and got good data and kept the spacecraft and that scan platform happy and healthy enough for a successful Neptune flyby a few years later. So in you know January 24th, 1986, uh, it, uh, Voyager 2 came within 81,500 kilometers or uh, over 50,000 miles from Uranus, which is about a little over three uh, uh, radii, uh, planetary radii. And just to envision what's going on here, right? Because Uranus has like really extreme obliquity, it's tipped on its side, essentially, right? Its axial tilt is a little more than, you know, 90 degrees. So technically, it's slightly retrograde. So it's kind of like, you know, the flyby isn't going along relatively near the equator of the uh, 
spacecraft or, or the planet, or even in that kind of rough direction. Instead, it's like hitting a bullseye, essentially, where you've got the, you know, the planet and its ring system and the moons all kind of like, like a bullseye and the spacecraft plowing right through the middle of it, essentially. And so because it got so close to Uranus, Uranus has had moons known uh, for centuries. It was the first uh, planet discovered by uh, telescopes. First, you know, proper planet discovered by telescopes. And so uh, back then, you know, its, outermo its outermost moons were kind of discovered already. But the uh, innermost ones, uh, it really took Voyager to, to get. And so that's where the, uh, the clue comes from. Cheaper by the almost dozen. Ultimately, based on Voyager 2 data, uh, 11 moons were discovered in the image, including one, uh, Perdita, which was actually discovered over a decade later in 1999. It's actually a small little interesting history, I think. Uh, it, it was discovered uh, by um, a, a researcher named uh, Eric Karkoschka, who is at the uh, uh, Lunar and Planetary Laboratory at the University of Arizona, so LPL. The same people that brought you the Phoenix Lander and Osiris Rex. And uh, he basically wanted to compare uh, Voyager 2 images to uh, Hubble ones and in the process identified this moon. But a couple years later in 2001, the IAU, the big, you know, international astronomy body, demoted it and said that there wasn't enough, like, you know, follow-up images of it to really confirm it. And so it actually got demoted. So these demotions have been happening for a while, although this is about a moon in particular. And then it took another couple of years of them basically figuring out where it should be and then getting, I guess, Hubble data of it and saying, ah, there, see, it's, it's where it should be. And so it really is a moon of Uranus. And so indeed, in 2003, it was reinstated. And so that's why, depending on what source you look at, uh, they talk about, you know, Voyager 2 discovered 10 or 11 moons of Uranus. And that's because of that, that kind of weird little discrepancy there. What were they demoted to? Like, oh, that must have been a non-captured body or? Good question. So uh, Jeff Faust, which is pretty great, you know, over 20 years ago, uh, had written this article on it. And um, my guess is, yeah, just, just uh, you know, I guess uh, an asteroid. Just a minor body, you know, because 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 it did have it did have a designation in the minor body des uh, database, so it was considered like yeah, it wasn't thought to be like uh, an op an imaging artifact or anything like that. Okay, um, at least I don't think it was. It, it did have a, a classification, you know, a name and everything, but it had you know one of those kind of uh, S S two nineteen forty two kind of like just a bunch of numbers and a letter, you know, that kind of not something that gets a name. Let's say, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Voyager 2, successful, uh, fly by Uranus, so happy. I think I've been saying on the show how much I uh, was rooting for a Uranus orbiter, and now we're going to get one, which is pretty great. And then I guess uh, I, I will end on the other bit of uh, – sorry, this being astronomy, I got all the like the little trivia <laughs> that I love to say. Yeah. But, but you know, I, I always tell my students – so Uranus, right, is, is unique among the, uh, the major planets in the solar system – uh, even including Pluto, where it's the only one that wasn't named after the Roman counterpart of the kind of, you know, two gods that, you know, each of the planets is named mm -hmm. after. And so it could have been named Calus and we could have avoided all these Uranus jokes. But instead, <laughs> we decided for whatever reason, and I don't know why we went with the Greek, but for whatever reason, we went with the Greek version of uh, uh, Uranus. So I have one more planetary question about Uranus, actually. <laughs> and I know that I've come across the answer to this, but I've forgotten. Um, why is it tipped on its side like that? Because that's a bit odd. Like, how did it come to be in that orientation? Good question. My, as, as a non-planetary scientist, my understanding, the best uh, 
hypothesis is a collision that uh, uh, early on when it was still forming. And this must have been really early because it has like regular moons and it has a ring. Like it has things still in its plane, like yeah. like or its rotational plane. So I'm guessing early on when it was still a growing planetesimal, a large collision knocked it on its side and then it continued to accrete gas and build up and you know, grow in size until eventually, you know, it wound up the way it is now. Collins actually got a better answer. Uh, Collins says it tried to land on a slope surface. <laughs> <laughs> so the so the regular moons are maybe what was thrown off during that collision, maybe because they would have to have come from the planet, right? Or or they could have formed in the kind of uh, accre- the accretion disk that uh, formed as because as the so the idea for why the gas giants are gas giants instead of being the small rocky terrestrial type planets is once you get, you know, you, you grow via regular old, like, you know, accretion, you know, stuff coagulating and sticking together, the rocky kind of dusty stuff. Once you get to about 10 earth masses, then that's strong enough to essentially suck up the, uh, the hydrogen and helium gas from the, uh, the, the protosolar disk directly. And so that's why they then swell up into size pretty significantly at that point. That's, you know, the theory at least. And so in that process of, you know, this gas kind of getting swallowed up by, you know, getting accreted by the growing uh, Uranus, um, within that disk, they could have formed almost analogously to like like a smaller solar system, you know, through their own accretion that's happening in the disk. And so that's why Uranus has like five or six big round moons that are kind of normal looking that are in the orbital they're 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 prograde orbits around uranus they're in the rotation plane of or the orbital plane or sorry the rotation plane of uranus and and so those i think basically probably yeah they were built in that disk um as uranus was growing rather than that collision not like the earth's moon which we do think formed from a fission kind of you know there was an impact and debris was cast out and then that coalesced into the moon does that make sense yep cool okay yeah that answers that thank you cool. <laughs> sure so yeah so the uh the the flyby uh was successful i'm super excited that we've got the uh uh uranus orbiter uh flagship mission hopefully we'll be going there at some point in the future we've been rooting for that uh for as long as i've been on the show <laughs> with you guys and uh yeah so uh in voyager 2 of course went on to do you know, a great flyby of Neptune. And then I guess, you know, shut down the scan platform when it was going into the darkness of space. But of course, it's super duper far from the sun is actually interacting with the interstellar medium now. And so uh, pretty incredible. And that was uh, this week in spaceflight history. All right. Thank you, Dennis. That was really good. Who doesn't love a good Voyager story? Uh, all right. Next week is the 30th of January to the 5th of February. David, do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. Next week in 1994, what comes between 1 and A? Okie doke. If you have a guess as to what this clue is referencing, email us at info at the orbitalmechanics.com. Shoot us a toot on Mastodon. Use the hashtag thisweekSF or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash discord for an invite to our Discord server. Good luck, everybody. Good luck. All right, so let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events. And thank you to Launch Library 2, which is where we start our research each week. And we have five upcoming spaceflight events. The first one is a NASA TV briefing, which I guess we don't usually begin with those. But yeah, what's this briefing about? Right, right. Yeah, it is kind of weird to start out with it. Uh, so this is a, a briefing on Crew 8. It's going to be taking place on uh, January 25th. There are two of them back to back. The first one is 1 p.m. And that's a, a media briefing on the mission. And then 2.30 is the briefing with 
uh, the actual crew. So a little bit of Q and A. So the crew for this flight, um, is Commander Matthew Dominic. This is his first space flight. Uh, pilot Michael Barrett. This will be his third space flight. Mission Specialist One, Jeanette Apps, uh, first space flight and Mission Specialist Two, Alexander Grabenkin, uh, who is also going into space for the first time. Uh, right. So those are January 25th, starting at 1 p.m. and going on for hours. And then after that, on the 26th, we have the launch of Spaceship Two by Virgin Galactic. Uh, and this is number six. So this is the sixth commercial mission. And uh, yeah, so this is just a, you know, suborbital flight launching from Spaceport America. The time for that, we don't know. Uh, it'll just be happening sometime on the 26th. So I guess just uh, keep an eye out for that. That's all there is for that one. <laughs> And so next up, we've got an Electron that will be taking four of a kind, a.k.a. North Star 1, which is four uh, space situational awareness satellites for the company North Star Earth and Space. Uh, it'll be taking them to LEO with the launch window opening on Saturday, January 27th at 0615 UTC. And it will be flying out of the Mahaya Peninsula in New Zealand at Rocket Lab Launch Complex 1B. After that is a Falcon 9 launching Starlink Group 638. Uh, enough said. Uh, that's going to be flying January 28th between 2304 hours UTC and uh, Monday, January 29th at 0304 hours UTC. And that's going to be flying uh, out of uh, Select 39A. Then after that, on the 29th, we have the launch of a Falcon 9 Block 5 again. And this one is launching Cygnus CRS-2 or NG-20. And this one is named Patricia or Patty Hilliard Robertson, a shuttle astronaut who tragically died in a plane crash before her ISS mission. And the launch time for this is on the 29th at 1729 and 52 seconds UTC, launching from Cape Canaveral from Slick 40. Uh, so, yep, another Falcon 9 going up, but not a Starlink launch. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. So Patty Robertson was a doctor and like going to do space medicine. And like that really sucks. One thing I didn't know is that she was born in Indiana, Pennsylvania. <laughs> uh. <laughs> All right. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. Which means it's time to jump at the show. And we would like to thank Ron Jinkies and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Chris S., Chubby, Dennis O., Mike, Colin, Psy Kyle, Calvin Stew, Citronaut, and The Greek for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. You can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash account. Or you can skip all that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So we'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.